Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. It's really, really good to be here this morning. I can uh, echo what Daniel said about having, being privileged to have that hope of eternal life. And, and we sure have been reminded recently of the opportunities that we have right here in this community to bring the light of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Several weeks ago, I was, I was thinking about um, preaching this sermon, knowing that it was Father's Day, and um, kind of thinking about developing a sermon for fathers. Well, I guess uh, my as I was thinking about things and pondering it, and I, I don't really have a Father's Day message. My message kind of developed into another message. Um, it is a message for men, for young men, all men, I guess. And so if you're here this evening, this morning, um, as a man, this message is for you. And I'm sure that you as ladies and sisters can also learn from it. I told uh, the other ministers this morning, I feel like I'm going out on a limb a bit, but I, I hope that it's a solid limb to stand on and to preach from. I don't know if I'd title the message, I was thinking about a title. I want to talk about how to treat a woman, or, or maybe a, a better title would be a biblical perspective on how to treat a woman. That's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. So I have three parts to the sermon. I want to think about, first of all, how Jesus related to women while he was here. There's a lot that we can learn from his example. And then secondly, I'd like to talk to the young men especially and how you should relate to young women, mostly before marriage. And then also husbands relating to our wives, husbands loving our wives. So let's uh, start out this morning by thinking about how Jesus related to the women in his life, in his day. And I'd like to turn to Luke chapter 8 and read a few verses there. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, is, I, what is the, the three verses I'd like to look at a little bit. Now often when we talk about Jesus and his ministry here on this earth, thank you Jason, We think a lot about his 12 disciples and those men that followed him and went with him everywhere that they went. And we should, rightly so, because they, they did take the kingdom, they, they took Jesus' message after Jesus ascended and they uh, went out and they preached and the kingdom of heaven began to grow and so on. But let, we don't want to overlook that there was also women who were following Jesus. And this, these verses talk about this. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. 
So just, just kind of three verses there that we overlook many times, fairly insignificant verses maybe. But it's, it tells us that Jesus had a very effective ministry to women. And it specifically mentions three women here. It mentions Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus had cast out seven demons out of her. It also mentions this Joanna, who was apparently the wife of one of Herod's stewards. Her husband apparently worked in the palace with Herod. She was a follower of Jesus. And then there was this lady, Susanna, which I don't know, uh, I, I should have maybe researched her a little bit. I don't know if there's more in the scriptures about her. But Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and then it says there was also many others. And it says these women ministered unto him out of their substance. And so there were many women, it tells us, who were ministering to Jesus, to the needs of Jesus while he was here on this earth. They were inviting him into their homes. They were preparing him meals, I imagine, perhaps even helping to support his ministry financially. You know, Jesus and his 12 men, as they traveled the streets and the roads of Palestine, they needed food to eat, they needed lodging, they, they had physical needs. It took money to live back then, just like it does for us. And, and they were not necessarily um, making a lot of money. Perhaps it was some of these women who were supporting him in that way. But it is safe to say, as we observe Jesus' life, that he went outside of the culture norms of his day and he, in the way that he related and ministered to women. And there are a number of incidents recorded in the scripture where Jesus intentionally reached out to women, showing us that he cared about them, that he had compassion on them, he respected and valued them for who they were. And we could look at the incident in John of the Samaritan woman, how that Jesus came and asked her for a drink at Jacob's well, and she was shocked because Jews didn't deal with Samaritans. Even a Samaritan, even a, a, a Jew, Jew would not even talk to a Samaritan, a fellow male, much less a woman, a Samaritan woman. But Jesus asked her for a drink and he opened up a door in doing that to show her the way of salvation and I believe to bring her to faith in him. Um, the woman caught in adultery is another incident of Jesus relating to women. I want to look at that one a little bit more specifically. Uh, Mary and Martha were two of Jesus' close friends. He went to see them and their brother Lazarus many times. And then the woman with the issue of blood is another one. And there's more that I'm sure we could, we could mention. But Jesus ministered to the women in his day. It was the women disciples who were at the cross when Jesus was dying. In those hours when he was suffering those awful, torturous last moments of his life, they were there watching, weeping, ministering to him unto the end. It was the women who went along to the sepulcher and observed his burial. They followed 
Joseph and Nicodemus there. Luke says that they watched how his body was laid. As I read that, doesn't that sound like a woman, you know, to be watching and caring in that way? It was the women who were the first to come to his tomb on the first day of the week. They were there early in the morning to pay their respects, bringing spices that they had prepared to put on his body. And it was the women who came back and told the disciples the news that Jesus was risen. Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection. So very, very significant ministry that Jesus had to women. Now, John chapter 8, scripture I'd like to read is the account of the woman caught in adultery. Very familiar scripture. I'm going to take the time to read it. John chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> and I like to look at this account to learn from Jesus' example in relating to this woman. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without stone, I'm sorry, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. <clears throat> now I think we need to think a little bit about how the Pharisees were treating this woman. I, I believe that they set her up for this. Uh, I doubt it was just a random happening that they stumbled across this woman in the act of committing adultery. I imagine it took some scheming, took some planning on their part to be able to catch this woman in this act. Perhaps it was even one of them who was involved on the other side of it as the, as the, uh, the man. Now, that, that's my opinion. That, that might not be true. But, but here's some things that are true about the Pharisees and how they were treating this woman. They were shaming and humiliating her publicly. They were ostracizing her from others. They brought condemnation, nothing but condemnation. And they were also objectifying her, <clears throat> demeaning, devaluing, crushing her spirit, 
taking the life and hope away from her. That, that would sum up in, about what they were doing to this woman. They had no interest in her. They only wanted to use her to trap Jesus for their own purposes. And think about what Jesus, in contrast, how he turns this completely around and treats this woman with compassion and love. Jesus offered mercy instead of condemnation. Jesus offered hope and reconciliation instead of shame and reproach. Instead of objectifying her and her sin, Jesus saw the intrinsic value of her person and he appealed to the longings of her heart to find worth and life through him. That's what Jesus did. He completely turned this thing around and I believe he offered her hope and I can only imagine the, the hope and the, the spark in her words when he asked her, Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 14, we have the account of the woman who broke an alabaster jar of perfume and poured it on Jesus. It's another account that we could look at of Jesus and how he treated women, how he ministered to them. Now, there were some there that, that complained that this woman, what she did was a waste of money. This was an expensive perfume, very expensive. She, she broke that jar. When that jar was broken, it it had to be used. There was no salvaging it. She broke it. She poured it on Jesus. But Jesus accepted this woman's deed for what it was. It was an act of devotion, an act of love. He said she has done it beforehand for my burial. She was, I don't know, was it a God-given intuition of what was going to happen to Jesus? But Jesus simply took her act for what it was, an act of love, an act of devotion, and, and he memorialized her for what she did. He said, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of her for a memorial of her. So again, the naysayers, they wanted to devalue the woman. They were, they were critical of her intentions, but Jesus left us with yet another example of treating a woman with dignity and respect. He accepted her for who she was and he left her with affirmation and life. Now, history is full of stories from different cultures of women being suppressed and taken advantage of and abused by men. Uh, it, it seems to be the natural state in which a society falls into. But these things cannot be part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He has clearly showed us that by his example, by his teaching, as he valued and respected women, so also must we. Now understand me clearly, I'm not promoting feminism. The modern feminist movement is just as anti-God as a culture that oppresses and abuses women. And I think we need to be clear on that. They are rejecting the principles of the Word of God. The kingdom of Jesus rejects both of those ideologies and it embraces 
the example of Christ and the teachings of the scriptures. Galatians 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think that concept of equality in Christ Jesus needs to be firmly cemented into our minds. This is not, the headship order of Jesus Christ of the scriptures is not and an order of worth or value or inferiority and superiority in any way. It is, it is a, a matter of role in Jesus Christ, in salvation and in eternal life, in access to God. There is no difference between man and woman. And yes, God created us very distinctly different and he assigned us with different roles and different responsibilities, but in his eyes we are of equal value and equal worth. So that's the place we need to come to in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We need to reject the oppression, any kind of culture that, that oppresses a woman and, and uses her for, a man using her as a doormat or for his, his own uh, agenda and so on. We also need to oppress I mean, reject the, the modern day feminist movement that we see um, taking over in our culture today. All right, now I'd like to uh, think about young men relating to women. And I'm specifically talking to some of you young fellows up here. I don't know all of us can learn from it. And I really believe that the place to learn how to relate well to the opposite sex is in our own homes, in your home. And at, at home is where you have learned, hopefully, where to, how to treat your mother with love, dignity, and respect that she deserves. And, and we have a lot of responsibility here as fathers in teaching our sons those things, and especially by example. We owe our sons the privilege of them growing up and seeing us love and honor their mothers. And, and perhaps we haven't done so well in that. But, and, and Arlen talked this morning about speaking about things that, that he needs to hear. And you know, that, that's where I'm at this morning with this. But young men, if, if that's your experience, if you have seen your father love your mother, that's something you can thank God for. That's, you've been given an excellent foundation for you to build off of in relating well to girls and in, in courtship and, and establishing a home and marriage and those things. There's a verse in Proverbs that I'd like to think about. Proverbs chapter 11, 11 verse 16 I don't even need to turn to it. It's such a short verse. I have it written out here. It says this. It says, A gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. Now, it kind of the first part of the verse is the verse that I want to think about this morning. A gracious woman retaineth honor. And it kind of puts the, the burden on, on the woman's side of things. But I'm going to look at it a little bit at a different angle and kind of address it from a young man's side of this. So what is this, you know, this honor that a young woman is to retain? She's to, a gracious woman, it says, 
guards and keeps and retains this honor that she has. Well, Strong says that this the word honor, the, the little definition of it is weight. Now, it's not speaking about physical weight, but I, it's speaking about real substance. Okay, think about it in that way. There is, there, every young woman has something about her that is real, a substance that is real. It's, it's speaking of her splendor and her glory and her honor and dignity and worth. Those are the, those are the, it's kind of hard to, to put a definition on it, but I believe that is what it's talking about. So that, now we all know, young men, all of us, you know that God has given there is a healthy, God-given magnetic attraction between young men and young ladies. It's good. It's, a God, it's God's design. He created us in that way. But there are also boundaries that may not be crossed as you relate to each other, as young men and as young ladies. Ladies, there are things that you are to keep to yourselves. There's an honor that you are to guard and to retain there's things that you do not give to any young man who is not your husband. The honor and glory that you're instructed to retain, it has to do with your body, your physical beauty, your sexuality, even your emotions to a degree. Uh, again, I kind of struggle to define this, but I think you're getting the picture of what this honor is that you are to guard and to keep for yourself. And for you fellas, these are things that you have no right to take from a lady. And if you do, you're violating her space. You're robbing her dignity and her honor. You're taking from her something that does not belong to you. Now, this isn't limited to, to you know, physical touch or, or acts, but it's certainly a big part of it. I'd like to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says here, Paul writing to the Corinthians. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So right there, it sets the boundaries for where it's right to have physical contact with a woman. It's in the context of marriage. Right, right there, the boundary is set. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, except when a man, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. So again, verse 4 makes it very clear. Only in the context of marriage do you not have power over your own body. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? The wife hath not power over her own body. When you are married as a young man and a young lady, you become one and you give yourselves to each other physically. That's how God intended it to be. But until that marriage covenant is established, until that commitment is made, you do have the power over your own body. You do not give what doesn't belong to a young man. You don't give those things to him. 
and neither do you take those things from a young lady, young men. It is only in the context of marriage. Outside of marriage, you keep it to yourself. You don't flaunt what God has given you, that dignity and honor. You don't make yourself vulnerable to the enemy and open the door for temptation and lust. You maintain reserve. You keep the dignity and honor and splendor that belongs to you, young ladies. That's what I see this verse as, as saying. Now we have, as a church, for many years have a hands-off policy, practice, policy, whatever you want to call it, in, in courtship. And, and sometimes I get the feeling... In, in I guess the, the the spirit of the age that it's it's kind of perceived as antiqua, antiquated and, and old-fashioned even by people in our own circles but I'm here to this morning to embrace it and to promote it as biblical and right and good it's a boundary that is fairly simple and easy to define and I believe that once that boundary is crossed once you allow touching and things like that, that there is no convenient stopping place. Once the hands-off boundary is crossed in courtship, you will very, very quickly enter into territory where you are giving and taking things from each other that you have no right to before you are married. Jesus taught that lusting after a woman is committing adultery in your heart. Matthew chapter 5, very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that in the spirit of Jesus' teaching, we could also say that that applies to fornication. When a couple begins to take physical liberties that creates sexual arousal, isn't that fornication in the heart? Isn't that committing fornication in the heart? So a gracious woman retains her splendor and glory and I suppose this might be a, a, a sum, summing of that verse. A gracious woman retains her splendor and glory, and a good man will not take that glory and honor from her until he has a right to it in marriage. Perhaps one of the most blatant and widespread violations of this verse is the objectification of women. And I think you know what that term means. The idea of seeing a woman as an object, an object of lust rather than a person of intrinsic beauty and worth. This is a problem as old as man. You know, it's, it's forever been a problem of the human heart for us as men to objectify women. And just, just a simple little illustration I thought of in my own experience. And years ago when I was working in, uh, in an Amish construction crew, I was driving um, with some of the young teenagers that were working with me and for me. And they, we were driving down the road, and I kept hearing them talking about, um, did you see that seat cover in that car, a really nice seat cover? And it took me a little while until I caught on that they weren't talking about seat covers. They were talking about attractive ladies driving the cars. That's what it means to objectify a woman. It's not right. It's wrong. That's not the way Jesus looked at women. But this old problem 
again, it's as old as, as we are, but, but the internet and technology today has taken this to a whole new level. If a woman is willing to objectify herself, she can become a social media influencer. You know, that's a term I just learned in the last year or two. Social media influencer who has thousands and millions of followers. All she has to do is be willing to flaunt her body and, and you know, give what, does, what she shouldn't be giving to the public. Give her dignity. The porn industry is based on the objectification of women, women who are willing to sell themselves for financial profit, women who are willing to sell out every shred of dignity and honor that they have. And sadly, it's possible because millions of men are just more than willing to indulge and to take what they have no right to take. Young men, remember the example of Jesus. He never, ever objectified a woman in any way. Rather, he saw the intrinsic worth, the beauty that God had created in his own image. And so we need to guard our eyes and our minds. Taking a woman's glory and splendor doesn't need to be done physically. It can be done with the eyes and through the mind without ever touching her can be done mentally, but it's just as wrong. And it's taking things again from a woman that you have no right to take. So young men, treat the ladies with respect, with dignity, and with the courtesy that they deserve. Don't try to take things you have no right to take. Give her the physical and emotional space that she deserves as a woman of honor and worth. A girl will respect you and admire you for doing that. And I thought about the, another thing that I see coming in our day is this, this hugging between the sexes, between the genders. Uh, young people are doing that. And, and you know, I don't know what you think about that, but it, it bothers me a bit because, you know, our president has been accused of being too touchy with women by the world, by society. God forbid that those things, that we be accused of those things. It is far better to err on the side of leaving a girl with her respect and not invading her space. Far better, and she will respect you for that. This, this thing is very practical. Guys, don't play games with a girl, with her emotions, before dating. If you like a girl, don't flirt around first. Just, just be straightforward and ask her out. The worst thing that can happen is that she, can, she might say no. You know, it's, it's not that bad. You might think so, but... So, that, so treating a girl with respect is very practical. It's, it's things like letting them go first. Just good old-fashioned chivalry, I guess is what the word is. Letting them go first. Holding the door for them. Offering a ride. Being courteous and kind. Someone has said, it's, it's a man's job to respect a woman, but it is a woman's job to give him something to respect. That's what we're talking about. 
Now, in the last part of the sermon, I'd like to think about husbands love your wives. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is the last scripture that I read there, but it says, says there in 1 Corinthians 7, and this verse caught my attention again. It says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. That little phrase, due benevolence, caught my attention. Now, benevolence is, is just simply common kindness and respect. Those same things that I was telling the young men about and how to treat these young ladies over here, that's how we should be treating our wives, men. It's, it's easy to fall. I find this for myself. It's easy to fall into a trap of mediocrity and um, kind of taking my wife for granted. But she is a beautiful person that God has given me and she deserves all the love, kindness, and respect that I can give. I need to remind myself of that every day and not take her for granted. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And we talk about that verse many times at weddings. The sacrificial love that Christ had for the church is the example for us. It's how our love for our wives should be a display to the world that they might understand, that they might recognize the love that Christ has for the church. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor, there's that word again, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. There's a lot of things packed into that little verse. It says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. And, and my take on that is that you know we we know how we're supposed to treat our wives and how we're supposed to love them and so on it, it's just that it's the knowledge is there it's just that it's so many times hard to put it into practice and then it says giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and so there's the difference between man and woman. The world wants to blur the lines of gender. That's what they like to do today. We see that. It's, it's a hotbed issue in, a, in our society right now. They want to blur those lines. But Christians embrace and celebrate the difference. The wife is the weaker vessel, not inferior, but it literally means not as strong physically. She, she just isn't as strong as, as we men are. The woman isn't. And that's, that's the way God designed it. It's intended to be that way. She has strength that we do not have as men. In fact, I was, as I was studying um, a little bit of Jewish culture and trying to, to figure out how the Jews in Jesus' day treated women. I, I didn't come up with a whole lot, but I found these nine quotes from the Talmud, and uh, they were interesting. It's, this, this is what it says about, about women. 
from the, the Jewish Talmud. Uh, ten measures of speech, and these are not, uh, by reading these, do not take me as saying this is how the thi these things are. It's, it's simply, I'm reading Jewish literature, okay? Ten measures of speech descended to the world. Women took nine. Women are light on raw knowledge, but they possess more intuition. A man without a wife lives without joy, blessing, and good. A man should love his wife as himself and respect her more than himself. Israel was redeemed from Egypt by virtue of its righteous women. A man must be careful never to speak slightingly to his wife because women are prone to tears and sensitive to wrong. Women have greater faith than men. Women have greater powers of discernment. Women are especially tender-hearted. I'll just leave those for what they're worth. But there is a difference between us and that difference is to be celebrated. It's not lines that we blur. It's a difference to be celebrated in the kingdom of God. And then there is also that equality right here in this verse. It says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. There's that equality in Christ Jesus that we have. Now I'm going to close by reading a story that I, I really, really like. And I read this story here a number of years ago. So I don't know if you remember it or not. And, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm reading it again is, is Brother Sam mentioned it to me of a few weeks ago. And I think there might have been someone else. So I'm going to read this story. To me, it is an excellent example of a man who learned how to treat his wife with dignity and respect. So I'm just going to read this story. It was, first of all, it was written in 1965 by Patricia McGurr. It was also published in the Reader's Digest in February 1988. <clears throat> My trip to the Kinawata Islands in the Pacific was a memorable one. Although the island was beautiful and I, enjoy and I had an enjoyable time, the thing I remember most about my trip was the fact Johnny Lingo gave eight cows for his wife. I'm reminded of it every time I see a woman belittle her husband or a wife wither under her husband's scorn. I want to say to them, you should know why Johnny Lingo gave eight cows for his wife. Johnny Lingo is known throughout the islands for his skill, intelligence, and savvy. If you hire him as a guide, he will show you the best fishing spots and the best places to get pearls. Johnny is also one of the sharpest traders in the islands. He can get you the best possible deals. The people of Kinyawata all speak highly of Johnny Lingo. Yet, when they speak of him, they always smile just a little mockingly. A couple days after my arrival to Kinawata, I went to the manager of the guest house to see who he thought would be a good fishing guide. Johnny Lingo, said the manager, he's the best around. When you go shopping, let him do the bargaining. Johnny knows how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo hooted a nearby boy. The boy rocked with laughter as he said, Yeah, Johnny can make a deal all right. What's going on? I demanded. 
everybody tells me to get in touch with Johnny Lingo and they start laughing. Please let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, the manager said, shrugging. Johnny's the brightest and strongest young man in the islands. He's also the richest for his age. But, I protested, if he's all you say he is, why does everyone laugh at him behind his back? Well, there is one thing. Five months ago at Fall Festival, Johnny came to Kinawata and found himself a wife. He gave her father eight cows. I knew enough about island customs to be impressed. A dowry of two or three cows would net a fair wife, and four or five cows would net a very nice wife. Wow, I said, eight cows. She must have, she must have beauty that takes your breath away. She's not ugly, he conceded with a little smile, but calling her plain would definitely be a compliment. Sam Carew, her father, was afraid he wouldn't be able to marry her off. Instead of being stuck with her, he got eight cows for her. Isn't that extraordinary? This price has never been paid before. Yet, you called Johnny's wife plain? I said it would be a compliment to call her plain. She was skinny and she walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked. She was scared of her own shadow. Well, I said, I guess there's no accounting for love. True enough, agreed the man. That's why the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get special satisfaction from the fact the sharpest trader in the islands was bested by dull old Sam Carew. But how? No one knows and everyone wonders. All the cousins urged Sam to ask for three cows and hold out for two until he was sure Johnny would only pay one. To their surprise, Johnny came to Sam Carew and, and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. Eight cows, I murmured. I'd like to meet this Johnny Lingo. I wanted fish and pearls, so the next afternoon I went to the island of Nurabandi. As I asked directions to Johnny's house, I noticed Johnny's neighbors were also amused at the mention of his name. When I met the slim, serious young man, I could see immediately why everyone respected his skills. However, this only reinforced my confusion over him. As we sat in his house, he asked me, You come here from Kinawata? Yes. They speak of me on that island? Yes. They say you can provide me anything I need. They say you're intelligent, resourceful, and the sharpest trader in the islands. He smiled gently. My wife is from Kinawata. Yes, I know. Do they speak of her? A little. What do they say? Why, just the question caught me off balance. They told me you were married at festival time. Nothing more? The curve of his eyebrows told me he knew there had to be more. They also say the marriage settlement was eight cows. I paused. They wonder why. They ask that? His eyes lighted with pleasure. Everyone in Kinuata knows about the eight cows? I nodded. And in Nurabandi, everybody knows it too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought. Vanity. 
Just then, Sarita entered the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still for a moment to smile at her husband and then left. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, and the sparkle in her eyes all spelled self-confidence and pride, not an arrogant, haughty pride, but a confident inner beauty that radiated in her every movement. I turned back to Johnny and found him looking at me. You admire her, he murmured. She's gorgeous, I said. Obviously, this is not the one everyone is talking about. She can't be the Sarita you married on Kinyawata. There's only one Sarita, he said. Perhaps she doesn't look the way you expected. She doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think eight cows was too many? A smile slid over his lips. No, but how can she be so different from the way they described her? Johnny said, Think about how it must make a girl feel to know her husband paid a very low dowry for her. It must be insulting to her to know he places such little value on her. Think about how she must feel when the other women boast about the high prices their husbands paid for them. It must be embarrassing for her. I would not let this happen to my Sarita. So you paid eight cows just to make your wife happy? Well, of course I wanted Sarita to be happy, but there's more to it than that. You say she is different from what you expected. This is true. Many things can change a woman. There are things that happen on the inside and things that happen on the outside. However, the thing that matters most is how she views herself. In Kinyawata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. As a result, that's the value she projected. Now she knows she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. It shows, doesn't it? Then you wanted... I wanted to marry Sarita. She is the only woman I love. But I was close to understanding. But, he finished softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. I think Jesus taught us what it means to value and to love a woman. May we take his example and do that. Let's kneel for prayer.